You are listening to the Rama Blueprints Podcast, The Roots of Rap, Part 3. Mitchell Salazar, Loyal to the Soil. Welcome to the Rama Blueprints Podcast. In the next episodes, we present Mitchell Salazar, the Real Alternatives Program's Executive Director from 1984 to 1999. During Mitch's tenure at RAP, the level of youth services expanded, which also included starting a four-year high school and a teen clinic. Mitchell passed away in 2022. His story is a complex one filled with twists, risks, and opportunities. We follow a handful of events that not only helped shape one of the San Francisco's Mission District's most effective community leaders, but also show what his heart and intentions were for the actions and decisions he made. By no means is this a complete biography, but only a fraction of his incredible story. We are honored to have called Mitchell Salazar our mentor, our friend, our brother. We present Mitchell Salazar, loyal to the soil. Mitchell was born in Clovis, New Mexico on November 21st, 1961. One of three kids, they grew up within a household filled with domestic violence until his mother moved her and the kids to San Francisco to escape the abuse. They would find themselves in San Francisco's Bernal Heights. This is where our story begins, inside the neighborhood where Mitchell's entrepreneurial spirit begins to surface as a very young man in his early teens. I would say that much of my hustle started in Bernal Heights in the 70s. Bernal Heights at Cortland Street was a real multicultural family, working class neighborhood. There must have been 25 businesses on the stretch of Cortland Street from Volcana to Folsom predominantly African-Americans who had beauty shops, barber shops, record stores, candy stores, cleaners, and an array of businesses. And I was a kid growing up there, and I hustled and worked at many of these places. And it gave me a real uh, appreciation for running around and trying to make dollars. Mitch was a hustler from the very beginning. This is the voice of a mission veterano. Mitch worked at the laundromat. Mitch worked at the bait and tackle shop. Mitch worked at for the picnic. And you know, he just always was a person that hustled. At this time, Mitchell would have no idea of what doors he was opening, nor which path of his life's journey had begun. When I was in the eighth grade, I cut health of my thumb off in the metal shop at that point. My mom said I was just going out of control. She sent me back to New Mexico when I was maybe 14. And I lived in a little town called Portales, New Mexico, which was like on the Texas border. I was there for a year and I landed up working in the field, picking weeds out of peanuts. And for that year that I was there, you know, I definitely said, Mom, man, it's time for me to come home. 
And she allowed me to come home. And I was probably 15 years old and ended up going to John O'Connell. Back in those days, there were Filipino gangs. And we used to fight them. And one of my good friends by the name of Arturo Duran was killed when he was 15. And so from that experience, I started to be a good boy. And I started peddling marijuana because the local biker club would give me it big bags and say, just bring me back some money. And once that happened and I learned how I could make that kind of money, all the other drugs followed. And again, getting caught up in some entrepreneurial behavior with mescaline and acid. And I remember I had two shop classes at John O'Connell and just kind of went in and out of those classes, didn't take it serious. Went from John O'Connell to downtown high. And something happened, probably around 17, a friend of mine used to do these dances and charge. And so I decided to do them to make money, entrepreneurial behavior. And we called on Mitchell Salazar presents you and I, and they took off. It was the right time at the right place. If it wasn't for Mitch, I don't think the mission would be exactly what it would be without him. This is the voice of a mission veterano. Because he's the one that brought so many people together. Because back in the old days, it was just mainly people from the mission. But by Mitchell having these dances, it was bringing people from San Jose, Hayward, Oakland, all over the place to the mission to unite with the music. In the late 70s and early 80s, law writing became very right. popular. This is the voice of Roberto Hernandez former director of the Real Alternatives program. I think the movie Boulevard Nights is like blew up and right. everybody wanted to be a cholo. Everybody wanted to be Chuco. Everybody wanted to be a lowrider. So you had lowriders coming from as far as Sacramento, as far as Fresno. So, you know, I grew up on the mission, born and raised. This is the voice of Vicente Padilla, former rap high school teacher. I used to go to the UNI dances that Mitchell used to put together which was so much fun and cruising in the mission afterwards. You know, we used to walk up 24th and down Mission Street on the weekends. That was a thing to do. Um, there was not all this blue-red shit going on. And I used to walk from Cortland and Bishop to Dolores Park, putting up the posters for the UNI dances. And I would do these little events. And those little events grew into bigger events. Mitchell, by this time, has realized that academics are not his forte and turns to the school of real-life experiences. He meets individuals that are both street smart and business professionals. To navigate his way to finding a balance in both worlds, Mitchell begins to apply risky strategies and meet success and failure. He's now enrolled in the School of Hard Knocks. Dan, I was approached by one of the neighborhood businessmen. Uh, his name was Simon, and he was from Detroit. He used to be a writer for Motown. He was a mm -hmm. pimp, and then he came to California, went to college and became a psychologist, and then became a compulsive gambler. And he had a business called the Portable Picnic, and basically it catered to a very white group of people in downtown buildings that wanted to eat healthy salads, turkey sandwiches, carrot cake, vegetables, and tuna, and egg salad. 
And he had this whole little menu of items. And I started making cookies for them. After, you know, a couple of months, he said, hey, man, why don't you come work full time for me? And if this business takes off, be you and a, a white boy from Southern California that wanted to be a probation officer that was like a folk singer, straight whitey. It was the three of us. And I worked from 10 at night till around noon or 11.30. We would prepare all the turkeys by scratch and make all the food by scratch. And I did it and I did it and I did it and I did it. And I landed up quitting school because I couldn't do both. And all his dances were just so beautiful. This is the voice of Bobby A., a childhood friend, DJ, and promoter. That you and I record right there. The story behind that record is that one record Mitch always used to play and everybody would get up and party and dance and go crazy. Me and Gilbert, we've been married together 43 years. This is the voice of Michelle Hernandez, longtime family friend and former member of RAP's Parents for Peace. And if it wasn't for the you and I dances, we wouldn't have had a place to go. We wouldn't have had a place to entertain ourselves and be off the streets. I uh, started doing these dances, and there was a gentleman that had an ice cream store next door that was a very uh, influential consultant that worked for McKinsey and Company. And he had this ice cream store as a tax shelter. And myself and the compulsive gambler asked him to borrow $1,000 so that I could do a big dance at the California Hall on Polk and Turk. And mm. this poor gentleman by the name of Julian Fairfield said, I'll give you a thousand, but I want to charge you a thousand. He said, what the fuck? Uh, we said, fine, we'll do it. And we brought in a group from Chicago called the DeSoto Band, which was Latino musicians playing Funk and dance music. And obviously, we had DJs. And back in those days, when you're talking 1978, 1979, back in those days, you only had two or three radio stations. And one of the most listened radio stations back in those days for us in San Francisco was KDIA. Mm -hmm. And I hired one of their black hosts, Alvin Weekle, maybe. And there I was at 17 years old, did all the promotion. We, you know, obviously we didn't have uh, social media and uh, word of mouth. And there I was at around 1,700 or 1,800 people showed up. And I was in the middle of that dance floor, fucking in Oz, couldn't control shit, wanted to wow. do a dance contest. And Ernesto Salazar popped up and came up to me and said, hello, brother, my name is Ernesto Salazar, and it looks like you really need some help. I got a bunch of homies with me. What do you want me to do? I said, clear the dance floor, and let's do a dance contest and try to keep this shit intact. And at that time, the guy that loaned us $1,000 had been selling fucking hot dogs and selling sodas and was just blown away blown away and the event was a success a couple of weeks after that he called me up and he said hey Mitch let me uh talk to you so he, he says hey stop working for Simon 
come work for me. You'll work in the ice cream store three days a week. I'll pay you $500 a month for your spending money. And I'll front all the money to do the dances and we'll save the money and invest it. I said, oh, that's like a great deal. I did it. And the first chunk of money that he gave me, I tried to flip it and fucked it up. And he was somewhere out of the country. He called me up and said, hey, I don't have no time to fuck with you. So uh, the deal's over. By that time, I was around 18 years old. And so I was still doing the U and I dances, but I was working at a dry ice factory in San Francisco for around a year. I worked on uh, helping my friend install office partitions. This was like, you know, 17 and maybe part of my 18 year olds. And then one day I was approached by Roberto Hernandez at RAP located on 23rd in Florida. And he asked me if I wanted to be a youth organizer because I had the ability to organize. That's what he saw because he was one of the witnesses that saw me organizing these dances. Mitchell is my husband who became the executive director. This is the voice of Kathy Velez Salazar, wife of Mitchell Salazar and former rap employee. Actually, Mitchell and I started the same day, Mm -hmm. same day in April of 1980, even though he was involved with the rap um, agency, I believe as a youth, but uh, we both started our employment the same day. He I was, was the office coordinator. He started as a youth worker and then he ended up as the executive director. So I agreed to go to work at RAP as a youth organizer. And I'll never forget it. Walking into a space that was a bunch of desks, conference tables at the back a raggedy-ass bathroom, and RAP was doing services at Youth Guidance Center. They were doing foster care. They were as a, the group home was already in operation, and there I was as a youth organizer. And then I was being exposed to advocacy and community work. After the foundation for RAP was laid, Rap became involved in communities throughout the city. This is the voice of Jim Queen, founder of the Real Alternatives Program. There was a rap program in every community throughout the city. In Bayview, Hunters Point, Western Edition, Filipino community, Chinatown, so forth. They all came out of rap. Central Ticambio came out of rap. And so on that basis, 17 years later, this young man who was just a child when rap started came on the scene. Mitch was brilliant. And Mitch laid the foundation. As people have said, he came in at a time when the gangs and the drugs were rampant. People were getting killed every day, every day. Because of Mitch and his leadership in developing programs within the mission, coalitions within the mission and citywide, RAP became the primary leadership in developing violence prevention programs for the city. RAP has always been a social revolution, has been in the forefront of the social revolution. And Mitch carried on that in the most beautiful way at one of the most hardest times possible. In RAP's early days, it was really a movement. It was a social action of people doing things 
in the community with no funding in some cases, volunteers, and I believe that the organization then prior to me taking over as executive director had begun to implement programs that was based on the need of the community. Jim Queen had a vision that there needed to be a strategic planning process for children, youth, and family services in San Francisco. And it was a citywide strategy. And there was citywide groups of people like Lefty Gordon, Jeff Morey, Tom Kim, Anola Maxwell, Espinola Jackson, Sharon Hewitt, Yuri Wada. There were community leaders throughout San Francisco that shared the vision that there had to be something going on because prior to the Department of Children and Youth and Families being created and implemented, which was Prop J back in the day, I believe that I listened and I was mentored quite a bit from Jim, having explained to me about what does strategic planning really mean and why is it important? And it can only be done if you can do it with the institutions and a community representation at the same time, because otherwise it's being done in a vacuum because the institutions, if they've done no community needs, if they've done no community engagement, if they haven't even been in the communities, how do they know what is best for the community? RAP from its inception provided services and advocacy to youth coming in and out of Juvenile Hall or Youth Guidance Center. Mitchell was versed in working directly with youth. Through strategic organizational planning, RAP created the opportunities for youngsters to thrive and empower themselves. Well, I remember when I was knee-deep in trouble and uh, my mom goes, I brought this guy home to talk with you. This is the voice of Pastor Ronnie Muniz, a former RAP student and employee. And I remember walking in the living room on 19th and San Carlos Street and Mitchell was sitting there with a Pendleton on and some Dickies. And I was like, you brought a homie to talk to me? And we started talking and again, that voice, right? And I was just listening to him. And then he started talking about school. And I was like, oh, you just messed the whole thing up. But then I remember going to rap and the, the different thing about rap for those of us that went there, it was like being on the block but we was being educated. God, I could go on with the stories of Snapper, Porky, all of us just laying on tables acting crazy. And then the teacher would come in and we would learn, you know, we wasn't just going to hang out. And then when I went to prison and I came home, I remember Mitch asking me to come to the office and I went to the office on a patrol on 25th. And I remember talking to these youngsters about why they shouldn't go to prison. And it wasn't the thing to do, and it isn't always to be glorified. And I remember Mitch coming and saying, you want a job? And I'm thinking, of course I want a job. What do I got to do? And he was like, exactly what you're doing. And I remember working with him doing that. And then as time went on, I ended up starting my own organization and Mitch was the president of my board. Mitch, you know, helped me to create. And like they say, giving back, I work with folks coming out of reentry or prison. So, and being a pastor, I mean, God, I was a dust head and all that other stuff. But 
never was looked at any different by Mitch. The County of San Francisco had no answer for the disjointed youth services at YGC. Young people were being tossed out with no follow-up. They found themselves running amok with very little family support. Failed city services pushed RAP to respond, and RAP convinced the city to give them the opportunity to open a temporary group home, La Casa, where they provided refuge and offered community service to help motivate and reconnect young people to a greater purpose, living full, productive lives. In addition to that, there was the group home. Mm. So there was an emphasis on foster care, and the group home was dealing with young men and women that were pretty much failure placements, and we would take them because when they get classified as failure placements, nobody wants to touch them. So we took them, and most of them were Latino, and it was a six-bed residential facility located on San Carlos Street between 20th and 21st, and this was prior to the gang saturation that the mission then experienced later down the road because I don't think that group home could have existed without neutrality. Under Mitchell's direction, RAP expanded and created more clinical intervention services and the need for building a cohesive team and staff. Up to this point, RAP was committed to hiring local youth to develop their leadership skills. But now some of the positions needed to be filled with college-educated and professionally certified people. Many from outside the mission or San Francisco stepped up to help and became adopted by the mission community. These new staff further exposing young people to engaging with the PhDs in streetology and those educated in the academic world. I'm, I'm a New Yorker and in, I went to school in Syracuse. So I was going to be a aerospace engineer, but I quickly find out that I wasn't smart enough. This is the voice of Chico Moreno, a former RAP employee and CASA manager. So I started traveling west, and I lived in a few cities in between Boston, Dallas, and then I ended up in San Francisco. So one of my initial jobs was actually working for a diversion program at the county jail. And I realized that I had a different path that was going to be my ultimate destiny. And as one thing led to another, I happened to meet a couple of people in the mission district that were very knowledgeable, interesting, very culturally grounded. And they told me about a position as they were doing some hiring at RAP. And they needed somebody to manage the group home, which was at that time, it was fairly new. I think we all started right around the same time, late 79, 80. I had the opportunity to start to get involved in, with, with RAP. And I could see that the majority of people were all born or had lived in the mission district for a very long time. Everybody knew each other. So I felt as an outsider at the beginning, but I was quickly welcomed and adopted by all of these folks. And for me, it was a learning process where you go from a corporate background to someone who had to get involved with the community mm -hmm. and to be accepted by the community and meeting Alfredo Borjorquez, mm -hmm. meeting uh, Mitchell, I could see that they had all the knowledge. They just needed someone to help them put it together 
in understanding how to write proposals, et cetera. And at the beginning, Mitchell couldn't put a sentence together, but that man was so determined that he accomplished so many things that I'm to this date, I'm finding out the philosophy of rap, which I really respected was that you do your time, you contribute, and then you move on and leave a young person to take over your job. So we were working ourselves out of a job <laughs> by leaving the seeds and the roots for that person to continue and take over. So, because I was a little older than, than the rest, I really, <laughs> I really absorbed that philosophy that I said, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I could be here for a long time, but that's, that's not the essence. And in the case of Mitchell, he needed to stay because there was so many things going on that it needed him and he needed rap at the same time. I remember the interview Mitchell gave me and of course, Mitchell was in his little office on patrol. This is the voice of Michelle Alvarez, former rap case manager, mission native and clinical services director at Instituto Familiar de la Raza. And it's something that always sticks to me and I utilize it all the time. Mitchell liked to do, right? He used to crumble paper up and miss the garbage can. <laughs> Sometimes he would make it. And I remember he missed and during the interview he asked me, what are you gonna do now? He asked me that during the interview and I don't think he remembers, uh. but he goes, someone with initiative will get up and put that little piece of paper in the trash can. Wow. So I knew then that being at RAP was really about, it really talked to, right, that self-determination, that right. initiative that we seek in young people, because all young people have it. We just have to find it, right? Mm -hmm. Or we help them find their own initiative. So that's always stuck in my head, that interview with Mitchell. Mitchell, having been schooled in RAP's philosophy of youth empowerment through personal change, he knew how to change a misguided youth's life with a job. Sometimes foregoing the application and interview process is more important. Remember, if you want to give someone hope, start by giving them a job and direction. This is Coffee Johnson, former RAP staff and case manager. Mitchell rose up with Kaya one night and of all nights for me to be there in the damn park. Coffee, what are you doing here? And I'm like, Oh my God, I was so busted. I was like so scared that it was him because I was like, oh shit, my brother. Like my brother didn't even know what I was into because I was trying to hide in the back streets. And oh my goodness, as soon as he find out it right, it was over. You get your ass home right now. And it was done. You better be at well, right there across the street. I was at La Raza Park right there. Nine o'clock, matter of fact, you better be there before nine. And I'm like, for what? And he's like, you're, you're going to start working. And I was like, what? Boom. Takes me right off the street, puts me at the front desk, and first day tells me, I don't give a shit who you see come through that door. You better remain neutral. And I'm like, is this guy serious? <laughs> he was dead ass serious. He took me at 19 off the streets and made me the secretary and turned me from the secretary into so much more. Six months, I proved to myself that I was willing to get off of the streets completely and change my life. And he believed in me. 
and it gave me an opportunity to become a case manager. And in that position, I was able to give back so much more and I was able to use the person who I was to get into places that a lot of people in the rap couldn't be. What I realized that rap is that uh, the emphasis on youth. This is Chico Moreno. Our challenge was to seek out the talents in the young people. And after working in the jail, I saw young people going astray and unless they were first time offenders, there was very little that I found myself being able to contribute mm -hmm. to anything positive. So when rap came along, it gave me the opportunity to start younger, to start with young people who were waiting for direction, who were wanting direction, and they just didn't have it. And that was the essence, that was the root of rap. Many times rap staff would take on a bigger role for youth, such as a big brother or a sister or a parental figure. Here is motivational speaker and former rap student, Alex Humphrey, who tells us how Mitchell brought him into boxing through rap. I haven't been in touch with my biological family for many years, but um, I found family when I came to rap. I go back with Mitch since I was 10 years old. Went to rap down on 16th and Mission. I grew up in the projects. I was between Hunters Point, the old Geneva Towers before they imploded them, and the old Valencia Gardens before they demoed them and rebuilt them. But I went to school there and fought all the time. Mitch turned around and was like, what am I going to do with you? We got to figure something out. And he says, we're taking you to this meeting and you're going to talk to the board. We have to convince them to allow the money to get you a personal trainer. And they agreed and started training me. And then the summer came up, Ray Balboron sat down with me, filling out applications because he was like, we're getting you out of here for the summer. You're going to the Youth Conservation Corps. You're going to live there for the summer. I didn't get acceptance from my own family but I got acceptance with everyone at rap. I remember trying to self-medicate. The big drug back then was, was dust. So I was dealing with the devil's dandruff back then. And I remember smoking that stuff and I was so high. My brother wanted to help me. He was like, I'm going to take care of you. But I felt like he was impeded in my space. And had I not been stuck, I would have killed my brother. So I remember calling Mitch and crying. I was like, Mitch, I need you again. He says, look, man, me and Kathy and the kids, we're going to be rolling around just paying some bills. I'm going to come pick you up. You just roll with us. And I remember I didn't say much. I just looked out the window as he just drove down the streets. I eventually got it together. But what I carried with me were things that I learned from Mitch, you know, which was being a person of your word, principles, integrity. With RAP continuing to provide comprehensive services, which included a high school, which started as a classroom inside a garage, then inside trailers, only to grow into occupying its own building, which provided enough space for all of RAP services, a one-stop shop. Setting up an alternative school program was possible because we did it. And we understood that the only way that it would work is that if it had intensive case management services. We went into collaboration with the health department. I mean, we put a clinic on site and had got the attention of the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Fund. 
and we actually had Ethel Kennedy and Michael Kennedy at the RAP site <laughs> dedicating the site as the Robert F. Kennedy RAP Health Clinic. Right. And we had Dr. Pierre that was paid from the health department to staff it. And we were providing preventative care for young people in the school that didn't have no health care. And we had the violence prevention. We had case management. And we were able to provide a wraparound services. In my medical school application, this is the voice of Dr. Pierre-Marie Rose, public health physician and on-site doctor at the RFK RAP Teen Clinic and the Second Chance Tattoo Removal Program. I wrote that my goal was to provide health care in underserved communities and actually start up my own clinic with a kind of a one-stop shopping model where kids could not only come without an appointment and get their needs met, but also in a way that was culturally appropriate, have the medications, the immunizations, and everything like that on site, along with mental health support. And I'll be damned if I didn't end up doing that at RAP. So that was something I wrote back in 1984 when I was applying to medical schools. So RAP will always be special to me because I took great pride. I was serious, and RAP gave me the opportunity to kind of manifest that and will always be linked. Violence prevention and intervention changed dramatically in San Francisco on the Saturday evening of January 11, 1992, with the killing of 12-year-old Byron Alvarado Martinez. But what I was thinking about was Byron Alvarado, a 12-year-old kid that was shot in the back when he was released from Mission Police Station because at that time the gang task force was just pulling in everybody and they thought he belonged to a gang and they let him out. They didn't go to contact his mom and he got shot in the back with a shotgun. And he was a little kid too. So the image of the little kid running down the street being shot in the back was something that the community as a whole came together on. And that stemmed that whole issue around, this is some serious stuff. If kids are going to be killed outside of the police station a half a block away on a Friday night with as much police cars and traffic that is on Valencia Street between 23rd and 24th on a Friday night. So it also showed the kind of insanity that these youngsters were living in to get out of the car and shoot them. Not a normal person will go shoot a 12-year-old kid you don't know in the back. I mean, you got to be high as hell or you got to have some serious mental health issues where you're going to take someone's life like that. And if it was an initiation, go kill him? Well, I mean, why him? So I just think about him because that particular murder had just perpetuated the need for the community to really look at this issue in a broader context. And we started to flip the script and say it was not a criminal justice issue, it was a public health issue, and just try to focus in a different way because everybody was still being looked at as bad. RAP is now in a position to seize opportunities to strengthen violence prevention intervention services and develop other programs citywide. On the next episode of Rama Blueprints, we continue to follow Mitchell's heart and his decisions as he leads the Real Alternatives program into a new era of youth empowerment. Unfortunately for many, 
The mission also experiences multiple incidents of community violence that demands citywide response and true investment in seeking solutions towards peace. We also follow how some of RAP's foundational components receive a new life. Thank you for listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast and tell two friends. You can also listen to all the episodes on carecensf.org website or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was written and edited by Karen J. De Leon and host Socorro Gamboa. We want to thank all of the interviewees, the Salazar family, CARESNSF, Instituto Familiar de la Raza, Pacific Resource Hut, United Players, San Francisco Foundation, Change Elemental, and those individual private donors who have graciously contributed and donated to our production. It is because of your kindness that we're able to produce the Rama Blueprints podcast. You can donate and become part of our family by visiting caresnsf.org. Gracias. Thank you for listening. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people.